watchers in the fourth dimension. Beauty and horror developing hand in hand. They shall all die. With death came rain. Hello, and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. When you need a little rain, you need a little death. This week, we will be discussing the Aztecs, the sixth serial of classic Doctor Who. So as usual, we're going to talk briefly about what was going on at the time, what may have had an impact on the making of the story, as well as some of the behind the scenes information. So this story was, uh, and I think it's reflected in the story, was made very much in the throes of decolonialization in the UK. We were giving up our foreign territories very quickly after the Second World War. It started in 1945 with India, and by this stage we are pretty close to giving our last territories in Africa independence. And I think that's something that's really reflected in this story. Elsewhere in the world, we are seeing the civil rights movement continue to trundle on in the US. The Vietnam War is continuing to escalate. Barry Goldwater, who would actually become the Republican presidential candidate for the forthcoming election, started suggesting that nuclear weapons could be deployed in the in the Vietnam War. We actually have the introduction of the first portable television being made by General Electric. Behind the scenes on this story, this one's written by John Lucarotti. This is the second of his third Doctor Who writing credits. They're all from the Hartnell era. Obviously, we had previously seen him do Marco Polo. And he actually would later go on to write the first treatment for what would become the Ark in Space for the fourth Doctor's run. But the script was so watered down from his original treatment, he doesn't actually get a writing credit on that. This story is directed by John Crockett, who had previously directed episode four of Marco Polo. This is actually his last contribution to Doctor Who. And the rest of Marco Polo had been directed by Waris Hussein. After this, he, had, he became primarily a theatre producer, would later become a teacher of art and drama in high schools, and actually ended his days living in a monastery. Quite what went on with him, I don't know. The incidental music is provided by Richard Rodney Bennett, who would go on to have some substantial credits on his resume. This was his only contribution to Doctor Who, but he worked on film and TV productions. He actually got a BAFTA award for his work on 1974's Murder on the Orient Express. He would do the music for Nicholas and Alexandra, the movie about the last days of the Russian Tsar. He also worked on Four Weddings and a Funeral and, and was knighted by the Queen in 1998. As the designer, we have Barry Newbury returning. This is the third of 14 serials that he worked on. He had previously worked as the designer on both An Unearthly Child and Marco Polo, and he'll continue contributing all the way up until the Fifth Doctor's era. So with that, we're ready for our short plot summary. And this week, that's in the hands of Don. While in 15th century Mexico, Barbara follows Winston Zeddemore's advice and accidentally convinces the locals she's a god and not just a casual grave robber. With no way to get back to the TARDIS, as usual, the true have no choice but to play along. Her proclamation that maybe they should be just a little bit less murdery draws the ire of Latoxel, high priest of sacrifice and singer of the local Marilyn Manson tribute band, who vows to stop at nothing in order to expose her for the false god that she actually is. Meanwhile, the doctor meets a woman named Kamika and decides to get some of that sweet ass tech hot chocolate. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm so proud. Thank you, Don. I actually loved the opening of this because after, you know, they get out of the TARDIS and they're looking around, they actually gave Barbara some kind of like background and speciality. Um, so she actually got to talk about some things and like, you know, a reminder that she was a history teacher. So I just thought that was really fun. Well, I enjoyed that as well. But 
it kind of came across like a baseball bat to the face of like, all right, well, we had our little like wild adventure, crazy sci-fi video game episode and serial last time. Now for some education, everybody get out your book. When I was going through school in the UK in the 90s and the early 2000s, the Aztecs were not something that we were taught about. I don't know how significantly the curriculum had changed since the 60s, but I would imagine it was even more focused on the history of Britain than it was when I was growing up. So I think that was probably some exposition that was very much needed. I think it kind of just goes to the different types of things they're trying to accomplish with the show. So while, yes, a good bit of it is supposed to be fun and we'll call video gamey, but... It also, you know, they always had that idea of making it educational, so I think it makes sense. I agree. One thing I did find interesting at this early point is Barbara, The first, one of the first things she does is she sees the bracelet and puts it on. You know, I, I was a history major myself and have a master's degree in history as well, and the idea that you would be in a tomb and the first thing you would do would be to take this historical artifact and say, hey, I'm going to wear this myself seemed a little off to me but obviously she's got to it's a big part of the the plot and and driving the plot forward but well and as we saw in the previous serial you know it doesn't take long for barbara to feel comfortable in a new place looking at the set design which i enjoyed but because of its um i i could not help but think of like that nickelodeon show legends of the hidden temple shout out to that show i love that show it was the best we had a show in the uk in the early to mid 90s called the crystal maze and one of the zones that they would go to every week and they you know it was a kind of a game show in that you would have a team who would have to overcome some challenges to win crystals and they would go through four zones one of which was always the aztec zone and seeing the set design if if this were in color i always imagine it looking very very similar to that show so i think uh you kind of see the legacy of the design carry on into later years so speaking of kind of the set design we get to have more like moving doors yeah i was gonna say how cool is that door and i think that's genius a genius way of stopping grave robbers it really is is this where i mean in my notes i believe we are meet we immediately meet minoxidil i I think is that where we meet him and his (laughs) no no we meet autobot here and then Minoxidil shows up. It was Autobot. Uh, that's right. It was not right. Yeah, it was Autobot first. Autobot first. And then Minoxidil comes in, and I think the best part of that was the way they had Susan react to him. It seemed kind of rude, but it made me laugh out loud. <laughs> I think Don, your uh, your description of him as being a tribute to Marilyn Manson was is not far off. I think Marilyn Manson sported a s- similar eye makeup around. Uh, I want to say it was the Pale Emperor or maybe the Born Villain eras. Outlock and Latoxel, I'll actually use their names, reminded me of the two like priests in The Road to El Dorado, which is a favorite movie of mine. But it's just like you have the one who's kind of like a little bit more laid back and is just like going to believe, you know, whatever like Barbara and them are saying. And then you have Latoxel who is all like, these people are fake. And then I was going to draw the obvious similarity between Latoxel and... Uh... Almost any performance of Shakespeare's Richard III. He's got the hunchback. He's he's speaking in the Richard III. Now is the winter of our miscontent voice. Uh, it's it's one hundred percent that. 
we're in an era at, at this point of Doctor Who where a lot of TV is still being seen as just broadcast theatre. And that is exactly what we see with Latoxel. We see it to some extent with Ortlock as well. So we've met Ortlock, who is a bit more of a moderate. We've met Latoxel, who is clearly designed as the scenery-chewing villain of the piece. And we've got Barbara going off to become a goddess. The rest of the TARDIS team emerge from the tomb and immediately find Barbara in splendor again. She looks wonderful. She has servants. And I, if I were her, I'd be like, you know what? I'm just going to stay here as long as I can. You know, it's, it's funny because one of the things that is, it gets, does get developed is Barbara really does like appreciate and admire the aspects. Just going back to when they are described as being Barbara's servants. Like, did anyone else notice kind of Ian's lack of, uh, Ian's look of, um, I'd almost describe it as incredulity at that. It's like, wait, what? He also found it humorous to a certain degree, though, and he was just like, all right, I can, I can live with this. Ian, Ian is very interesting in this entire, in this serial in particular. He, um, when Ian first arrives or comes out of the TARDIS and he's just wearing slacks and a dress shirt, I was a little getting a little worried. But thank God my patience was rewarded and we get to see him in so many outrageous costumes. You worried was, so needlessly. I know. Oh, this was great. They delivered. They delivered so well. So speaking of Ian, I mean, he's immediately basically pushed forward as a competitor for command of the Aztec armies and... Of course, Tloxel is positively chewing up the scenery while he's pushing Ian in this direction. And, and then we get a fight scene. But Ian, Ian isn't the one fighting. Right, we see Ixter. They really love these kind of fight scenes. We get, we get three of them in this story alone. We've seen them in the first serial. We've seen them in Marco Polo. And I thought the direction and the music here are, are very reminiscent to those two previous stories and particularly the fight scenes. And I, I think that really kind of shows why John Crockett was chosen to direct that one episode of Marco Polo is because his style and Warris Hustain's style are not actually that different. Oh, there was so much of a focus on these like man on man fight scenes. Like that's our big closer. That's our that's gonna get people's attention. It's so funny how now like you can't really close your a show on on a fight like that. Well, I think back in the sixties, TV was a lot slower paced, and one way to up the ante was with a fight. During production of this story, this one was moved to the BBC Television Centre, where the set was actually twice as large. So they designed all of these sets for the serial to fit at Lime Grove and suddenly they've got this much bigger space and they're having to do these tight shots basically to avoid <laughs> exposing the fact that they're not taking up the stage and you'd see all kinds of support structures and so on if they panned out too far. We're about to get onto the garden set with the Doctor but they actually lost half of the set in transit. They had some difficulties here. Speaking of the garden set, the Doctor is shipped off there because that's where all the old people are. It's basically the Aztec retirement home. Serenity Gardens. I'm really curious about this part because I wonder how accurate they could or could not be on were elders health in such high respect and did they just get to sit around? Yeah, I, I have no idea. Yeah, I'm like, I remember the Aztecs and the Mayans and like 
uh, you know, a few of those things, but as to how they regarded their elders, I have no idea. Personally, I love the Doctor's reaction to retirement. He is horrified by it. So, while in the garden, we have the Doctor meet Kamika, and love is in the air. You know, following Doctor Who, you, you get familiar with criticisms that come up from fans of the show during certain Doctors. It's fine to have like a, a, a marriage plotline that's done for a comedic effect, but I don't really think it was necessarily done that way here. I think the Doctor completely respected her. You know, I mean, I don't think he was in love with her at all, but I mean, I think he respected her and liked her. He didn't seem too upset about the idea of, you know, getting hitched. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting here is there's a lot of discussion amongst critics and fans on whether the Doctor's affection for Kamika is is genuine or not, or whether he's just using her. But honestly, I was watching it with that in mind. I was kind of thinking, well, you know, what what's the evidence for? What's the evidence against? And he seems to have the attraction towards her before he finds out that her husband was the architect of the tomb. So to me, it seems like there is at least some genuine interest there, even if it's not love. And I think one of the things that helps with that is when he's introduced to her, she's introduced as one of the wisest that they always turn to for advice. And I think that the doctor inherently would be like, well, if she's the one that they want to talk to all the time, obviously there's probably something, you know, to that. And, you know, she would probably be then the most interesting person for him to talk to. It's, it's a very interesting dynamic between the two of them. And it's, it's one we see throughout this story. And I'm sure we'll come back to it. Yeah. And what I like about it is it's not like a starry eyed thing. Because, you know, I could see some of the arguments for some of the other doctors that like they're in love with the doctor. And it's a, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, I've been blindsided by love. And but this one seemed actually more respectful two people who've both been widowed they've lost the people they love and they meet in old age it's not you know they've, they've got the experience of their lives behind them and it's not that kind of passionate love you see amongst people in their late teens their 20s their 30s it's it's far more i think measured than that moving forward uh, we did get at least one susan dramatic moment so getting towards the end of the episode Ooh, not up to her usual standard though yeah she's really holding back this time before we get there, let's talk about um, the events that lead up to that. So the Doctor and Barbara have this wonderful conversation and, and debate around, you know, Barbara wants to use her position to outlaw human sacrifice. And the Doctor starts talking about how history can't be changed, not one line. You know, she's she's determined to try, as, as, as you guys said earlier, because she respects the culture so much and genuinely believes that the human sacrifice will eventually lead to the you know, the destruction of the Aztec culture by Cortez when he eventually arrives. Just seeing that debate and the way they have that, it's, to me, one of the highlights of the show so far. Well, it's definitely one of the strongest moments in this year. I think. Looking at this in the, in the lens of history and what was going on when the story was being made, you know, Barbara's intent, or Barbara's opinion, I should say, that she knows better is very colonialist. You know, she... she believes that they're going to be destroyed by the colonizers, yet she equally believes that she knows better and wants to impose her values on this culture. But the interesting part about that is throughout the episode, we're shown that she's wrong, but it's such an interesting journey to take with her. I completely agree. To the Aztec people, she's technically the antagonist. Tlaxel's a jerk, but he's taking his religion seriously, and 
to him, you know, his people need that sacrifice. So, so it's going to rain. And this person shows up, claims to be a God and is doing something that to him is completely, you know, antithetical to his culture. Yeah. And, um, Lawrence Wood and Tap Miles actually talk about this in about time. They talk about how in any other tale, his attitude would actually make him the hero because he's trying to preserve his culture and only the way he's portrayed with the hunchback and the way he leers at everyone would kind of raise trust issues. But his viewpoint, he's not really in the wrong and he's really only the villain of the piece just because he's diametrically opposed to our heroes. Right, the value systems and the beliefs are different. So, but I mean, he's just operating within his own culture's cultural standard. I have no doubt through this that he genuinely believes that if they stop sacrificing people, their world will end. Maybe that would have made the episode a bit stronger if the depiction of Palatville uh, was done as a person who was just a very strong person of faith instead of having this undertone of that he just wants to hurt people, he just wants to be bad, you know? So we have Susan's little intervention. The sacrifice is deprived of his honor, so he jumps off the edge anyway and kills himself. We get rain, which we all know would have come anyway, but the Aztecs don't. And then we're kind of left with Barbara protecting Susan from justice, and Latoxel is realizing very quickly that someone who deviates so far from their customs can't actually be of divinity. And the way he comes to this realization, I mean, we know that's true. And Latoxel is very quickly realizing it's true and and it becomes this will she get outed to everyone else or how's this going to pan out and that's where we leave episode one episode two the warriors of death didn't the serial just have the best titles they all sound like metal songs absolutely is it either the end of the first episode or the start of the second where Toltoxel, after suspecting that she is not this god because of failure to go through with the sacrifice is this where as they would say in Blackadder, he decides to hatch a cunning plan. It's where he talks pretty much directly to the camera, both at the end of the first episode and the beginning of the second. Yeah, that opening shot where he is pretty much talking to the camera, what the way that's framed, I, I thought was fantastic. You know, that real close-up on him where he's just... Where you can really see that makeup. And, you know, he's positively gnawing on the backdrop. <laughs> <laughs> And then Barbara continues her little crusade. And oh my gosh, we get the doctor chewing her out. He really dug into her there. It ended up being a great moment. Like first he was chewing her out. And then after he said his piece, he was like, but you know what? We're at, we're at where we're at. You did what you did. So now we have to just move forward. And he apologizes for being harsh as well. You know, I don't think that's something we would have seen him do in one of the earlier stories. And and then they talk a little about his interest in Kamika, and Barbara calls him an old rogue, which I, I love. I believe this is where we get to one of my favorite parts of the serial. Ian is with Ixta in, like, I guess the armory, and so they're going to fight, or, in, or oh, actually not fight, they're just kind of, like, showing him around, showing him stuff, and he does his little thumb trick. But, like, all before that, Ian is just so cocky. Doesn't make any sense to me, because... <laughs> it's like when, when you when you think about it like that would be like me like traveling back in time to like the middle ages and then like hanging around some knights in an armory and saying oh you guys are are totally in for it 
as if I had any experience knowing how to fight them in, the, in these kind of weapons or in these type of conditions. One thing to keep in mind with Ian is, of course, he, he based on his age, he would have had to do national service. And we're, we're looking at this in the aspect of this is after World War II, where soldiers fought in terrible conditions in, in Asia, often in hand-to-hand combat. So he would have been trained in a lot of these things. And that's, we're, we're looking at you know, modern military training here versus Ixta's Aztec training. I think it's a very different world. And by the time we're looking at Ian, we've got another 500 years of progress. Well, that's a good point. I was trying to think of that too, because, you know, it's like, okay, he's a science teacher. Why does he think he's going to be so great at this? And why he like pretty much volunteered for it in the first episode when they were saying, hey, you should do this. He was like, oh yeah, I'll be fine. And it was like, Ian, that's a terrible idea. Why would you want to do that? I have that in my notes. Why is Ian so eager for this? You know, this is Barbara's story, so very clearly Barbara's story. We've talked about her being the real hero of of the show previously, but here she actually is, and she's built as such. So Ian's role is basically reduced to just being the muscle. This serial is so focused on Barbara, and she's so important to it all. I mean, you know, you could remove either the Doctor's story or Ian's story or Susan's story and leave the other two with Barbara's story, and the story would still work. Susan barely has a story because Carol Ann Ford was on vacation. Yeah, her her pieces in episodes two and three are pre-recorded inserts, so she's not actually here for this at this point. Yeah, well, I also think it's interesting with Ian, mainly from the perspective of how long do you think you're going to be there? Why would you volunteer to try to be the leader of an army when, in theory, you're still trying to leave? Why don't you use your efforts to investigate how to get out of there? I think the only real possible explanation there is he is just playing for time. I'm trying to make sense of something that doesn't make sense i think ultimately julie you're right it's going back a little bit but i think one of the things i found interesting is they came up with that idea of oh if we can convince otlock that we're kind of legit we can then like play the two priests against each other during this scene we we're introduced to the perfect victim who everyone holds in very high regard and boy does he know it (laughs) i don't know i'm pretty sure if you'd been named perfect victim you're gonna get picked on a lot at school God, I wish he'd been picked on more at school. He is insufferable. But um, we get more of him later. I actually kind of assume he'd play a bigger part in the story than he ends up doing. He appears a couple of times and is extremely arrogant through it, but then just doesn't really do much else. Anyway, we have uh, Latoxel showing up and baiting Ixta, trying trying to spur him on against Ian and telling him, you know, all honor and glory shall be yours if you destroy him. And ooh, he, they're doing everything they can to just make Latoxel seem utterly nasty. And I know I've already talked about my opinions on that, but, you know, it, it seems like it's overkill at times. So then we flip over to the Doctor and Kamika and their burgeoning relationship. And we have that really great line that where the Doctor says, I'm a scientist and an engineer and a builder of things. I mean, he's really selling himself here. He's laying the the charm on really (laughs) heavily. Sly old dog. Also, in this episode, he gets kind of like roughly roughhoused and carried away. I just don't remember so much physicality being put onto William Hartnell. Yeah, that is true. Also, we had that one cut scene with Susan and her saying, no one is going to pick her husband. No, that's not right. I love that she stood up for herself, but also at the same time, like, Susan, there's a time and a place because that just makes her a very suspicious character. 
Yeah, I, I agree. Although that's that's some nice mirroring of what of what they wrote for her in in Marco Polo. You know, where she's talking to um, Ping Cho. Believe me, I a hundred percent side with Susan on this. However, tact and trying to live. <laughs> <laughs> I cringed a little that she was learning the code of the good housewife. I was like, ooh. <sighs> I mean, I get it. It's it's a conservative traditional society in the Aztecs, and then it's being made in the conservative 1960s before the women's lib movement really took off. But looking on that in retrospect, it, it, it was kind of... I was just sitting there going, really? The fact that they had it all written down into rules that everyone followed, just like, ugh, oh, that makes me so sad and mad at the same time. At least that's relatively brief in the overall scheme of this episode. And going back to the mention of the thorn, you know, just drawing back to when I mentioned the doctor talking about how he's a scientist, etc. At that point, he specifically claims not to be a physician or a healer, but he... He shows himself as being able to provide insight on what certain plants can do to a human. So I, th I thought that was a little bit of a contradiction there. I know maybe it's rudimentary and to him that's something simple that wouldn't necessarily classify him as a medical doctor. Let's be honest, the doctor would have a terrible bedside manner. <laughs> no doubt about it. Particularly the first doctor. I, I wish it would have been done so comedically. I mean, I guess it's, to me it was comedic was that when the doctor is rushing to warn Ian, it's his warning that distracts Ian and gets him cut. Which is hilarious because before that even happens, Ian was holding his own just fine. In fact, Ian probably may have had just as good of a chance of winning as he had of losing. The way that fight plays out with Ian distracting, being distracted by the doctor, and then, you know, Ian's strength is slowly sapping away, but he's, st he's still able to put up a pretty good fight. I think it's a really, really great fight scene. It's one I certainly enjoyed watching, and I'm not normally one for fight scenes for very much the same reason that you, Riley, mentioned earlier. They just seem a little old-fashioned. It's stronger than the other ones. And of course, it's as a result of this fight that we really start to see the power play between Ortlock and, and Latoxel really start to take off with Ortlock saying that your taxa or Barbara is forbidding human sacrifice, but Latoxel is being pretty bloodthirsty. But then Barbara gets her badass moment. Yes, she does. Yes, she really does. Yeah, she's mm -hmm. phenomenal. In, just in general in this story. So we end with Latoxel challenging Barbara, and then we move into episode three, The Bride of Sacrifice. To your point, we see Barbara threatening Latoxel with, his, with a knife at his throat, which is definitely not what, what Latoxel expected when he said, hey, intervene. Clearly he was expecting something supernatural, and she just puts a knife to her throat, to his throat which I think is fantastic. It would have been way too Blazing Saddles-like if she put it to her own throat. <laughs> yes. Yes, it would have. <laughs> Barbara puts Ortlock in a really difficult position here, challenging him in front of everyone to support her. And I get why she's doing it, but uh, they're really messing with history here. They're really messing with history, and she's pushing really, really hard, and it could blow up in her face. One thing I really enjoyed about this story is there's an actual theme to it. And to me, that theme was that when you have an embedded power structure, it is very difficult to get it to change, even if you are suddenly placed at the top of that structure. 
Yep, for sure. The belief system is is not something that's just, you know, dictated from on high, but it's ingrained within all the people at the very bottom, and that's just hard to shake out of them. Exactly. And that's ignoring the fact that, I mean, it was the Spanish. No matter what the Aztecs were like, they were going to be in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I know from experience in the corporate world that, you know, trying to change behavior from the top is really hard. I can only imagine what it's like trying to do that, not just for a company, but for an entire civilization. While we're speaking of serious themes, uh, this is where I want to get to the portion of uh, Ian's talk with Barbara. It's it's really strange because you know you can see that she wants to like help them, but I'm having a hard time kind of I, I don't want to misconstrue what Ian's trying to say, but he kind of gives a sense of like, hey, you know, yeah, some of them are good, but most of them suck. And, you know, that's just how they are. And there's not much you can do about it. You just have to let them just let them go. Right. And also, is this I believe it is in the Bride of Sacrifice where Ian also is informed by the doctor about the doctor's impending marriage. Oh, I love that scene. That's a cute <laughs> scene. Very cute scene. So we're, we're jumping ahead a little because we've had Ian and Ixta starting to actually form a friendship, which is kind of weird given that we know that, you know, they're obviously going to fight again. And Ixta is not a very good friend. <laughs> you know, Ixta basically reveals that he manipulated the doctor and then the no drawings that he promised in exchange for the, the poison act actually exist. So what a bastard. <laughs> And then we have the Doctor and Kamika accidentally getting engaged, which it, that, that entire scene is just, I thought that was adorable. Yeah. It was very sweet. He's so oblivious, and he thinks he's just making a cup of cocoa without realizing the cultural connotations that that has. The Doctor's plot line with Kamika is very important because it really, you know, lights the mood so much instead of all this, like, fighting and sacrifice. And his his reaction when she says, I accept your proposal, it, it's just priceless. He just looks so shocked. And I loved that. You know, it, it seems, particularly watching Doctor Who now and, you know, coming at this from the perspective of at the time we're recording, we've, we've had Jodie Whittaker's first season and, and the first special. But, you know, after years of the Moffat era where the Doctor takes everything in his stride, to have him kind of looking back at this and to have him seem almost shocked is is something quite different and something that I really enjoyed seeing. And then juxtaposed with this, we have Barbara and Latoxel facing off where she confirms to him that she is a false god. Which is a bad move, I think. Very bad move. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was an absolute power move. It was a, yes, you're right, but if you do anything, I'm going to use my position to have everyone destroy you. And, I mean, he's, while scummy, he's pretty perceptive as well, though. I mean, he identifies Barbara's friends as her weakness and comes up with ways to put them in danger. And at this point is when we have our second Susan cameo whilst Carol Ann Ford is on holiday. Returning to the marriage conversation, it turns out that she's going to marry the smug git himself, the perfect <laughs> victim. <laughs> Not a fan, guys. Not a fan of him. And, you know, we're left with Susan crying, but we're, you know, I, feel free to disagree with me on this, but I feel like we, we've got used to Susan overreacting to stuff, but watching oh. this, I thought her tears were perfectly reasonable in this situation. No, you're... 100% correct. I was like sitting there, I was like, that was not, it was not dramatic. That was actually how any normal person would react. 
It was very well played. Poor Susan. I mean, you know, I, I feel like Susan hasn't had a lot of genuine hardship through the stories we've seen so far, aside from potentially having to run through the petrified forest and Daleks. But, you know, here she's really having a hard time. You know, she's shipped off to a... You would think that as a handmaiden to a, a god, you would get a little bit of slack. Yeah, it's like, I'm surprised they couldn't play some card where since she was the handmaiden of the god that, like, no man could have her. That's the route I would have taken. She is to be married to the perfect victim, so, like... So it's going to be a very short relationship. But, uh, no, I mean, you know, it's, it's, she's sent off, she's shipped off to a convent. She's going to be forced to get married. And now they're talking about punishing her. You know, before she was shipped off, they were talking about, I think they were talking about flogging her. I mean, she's just not having a good time, this story. Even Altlock starts to doubt Barbara here because Barbara is trying to be so protective of Susan and is going so far against Aztec customs. It's, I, I really feel like, the Toxel has done a phenomenal job at playing her on this. Agreed. Um, his plan is smart. It almost works. Only until the doctor is the doctor who gets everyone focused on, like, instead of like having to just survive and deal with the machinations of Taloxanol, um, it's only the doctor who then like comes up with like, right, Ever since we got here and got past that door, our entire purpose has been trying to get out of here. And so he's the one actually like focuses on that while Barbara's, you know, dealing with this idea of like trying to protect everyone, maintain her power, and also maybe even try to save the Aztec. Oh, the doctor's like, right, we need to get back to getting the hell out of here. And so that's where uh, Kamika comes in get to have a it it's, doesn't really fulfill itself too much but it's the the old uh ian almost getting drowned in a kind of sewer slash secret pathway kind of thing the doctor and ian had a really great moments like trying to figure out this tunnel how to get into it and all that kind of stuff because it's just like they've usually been so antagonistic in a lot of the other episodes that you know it is nice to see them like working together and getting along yeah it feels like they're really starting to trust each other so we have ian moving the obviously polystyrene stone going into the tunnel which ixta shows up and you know obviously knows that ian is in there because he's watched ian get up and go and meet the doctor and Ixta puts the stone back, knowing that water is going to flood into the tunnel and that Ian will probably drown. Because he's such a good friend. <laughs> this leads into episode four, the day of darkness. And so Ian survives. He, he ends up in the tomb. He finds a way to get out. And then we have Ixta being the great friend that he is and being <laughs> delightful towards Susan taking great pleasure in telling her that Ian is dead. Well, one of the other things I found interesting is, so Ixa is a warrior who wants to, you know, win through battle and all this other stuff. I feel like by locking Ian in a tunnel full of water, that that's not really like an honorable 
thing to do. So, like, I wouldn't think as, like, a warrior that's how you would have wanted it to go. Like, I... But um, I, I'm with you on that, Julie, because I got the impression from their conversation where they basically agreed to be frenemies that there was a basically a truce between them until they encountered each other in a fight. And, you know, that's that's what how Ixter wanted to things to end is to prove himself by defeating Ian publicly and that's not what he's doing here so I'm I 100% agree with you this just doesn't seem particularly true to what we know about the character to this point but you know when it comes back to Ixter and Susan I love how Ian appears behind him it's it's very (laughs) very (laughs) pantomime I thought we get one of my favorite Hartnell line fluffs around this time where he says, how glad I'll tell you how glad I am to see you later on. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I I love that. (laughs) That is one of my absolute favorite Billy fluffs. And, and so of course we have Latoxel continuing to plot and to, you know, Framey in for attacking Ortlock and all that kind of stuff. And of course, Ian finds the unconscious Ortlock and walks straight into the trap. And, you know, when he's being framed, Ian, you know, Ixter reveals that he knew that Ortlock was attacked from behind. And Ixter just says, This club belongs to Ian. Good, good job, Ixter. Some great deduction there. Appreciate it. Good talk. But it works. You know, Ortlock's left doubting everything. And after Barbara tries to reason with him, he says he'll try and protect Susan, but then just disappears off into the wilderness. It's a pretty tragic ending for him because his faith has been destroyed. Which, you know, is really interesting because at the end, the doctor, you know, talks to Barbara and kind of consoles her and does the whole like, well, you know, you changed one person's mind. I'm like, but but what is he left with? You know, what is, what is Matlock left with? He's, he he's won't left... be there when the Spanish show up. <laughs> he'll just die off in the desert he'll, before he'll die in a different and way. Be, be ostracized because he's not a believer anymore. It's not a good ending for him. It's, it's quite no. tragic. I don't know. Um, I felt pretty bad for the guard. He's getting bribed, has trouble making up his mind. Ian thwacks him. <laughs> oh, yeah. But then we get Ian in the headdress again. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Before we get there, we have that scene where the Doctor is basically breaking up with Kamika, and that, that was one thing I found absolutely heartbreaking. You know, he's unable to look at her during that scene. Like, going back to what I was saying earlier about the debate as to whether he has genuine affection or if he's just using her, he seems genuinely cut up about this. I mean, to me, this is a sign he genuinely does have affection for her. Uh, I just feel so sad watching this. And then she walks away slowly, just realizing that, and that she put herself, risked herself. It's yeah, it's definitely uh, one of the better moments of the serial. I mean, she she continues to help them for a bit, but in that final scene, where the last scene where she sees the doctor, and she just says, "Think of me, think of me." It's a very kind of mature goodbye scene, and it's it's tinged with sadness, but it, equally, it's not over the top it's not histrionic it's it's very measured but it's played with such pathos i love it and then we move into you know the the final piece of it where 
Starts off with Ixta killing a guard for failure, which is just extremely grim. Latoxel starts openly declaring Barbara as a fake goddess and lunges with a knife. Ian stops him and, and then Latoxel calls for Ixta and we get the silly costumes fight. Massive shout out to uh, Daphne Dare, who was the costume designer on this story, because these are amazing. Oh. oh, yeah. They make the fight a lot more entertaining. Oh, yeah. It is interesting throughout this entire thing when they're doing all of these public displays with these sacrifices that there is no audience. Well, I think we're supposed to believe that they're like down at the, like, the base of the pyramid or the temple looking up at them, I guess. That was my, that was my guess. They're all off screen. <laughs> They spent all the, the extras budget on Marco Polo so they couldn't afford them for this. It's even interesting because they didn't even have like crowd noises. Yeah, that would have been that would have been great. The mighty Aztecs. It's a religious of human religion of human sacrifice that has a total of fifteen people. <laughs> 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 Shit, we ran out of another one. We got to get more people in this thing. Which is why they wanted to marry Susan office because they realized that they had no more women who could bear children. <laughs> oh, goodness. So uh, the fight scene, you get a big old notch mark on the Ian Phil counter right there. Oh, yes. Oh, big one, too. Oh, yes. It, you know, previously we've, we've counted things that, uh, you know, weren't actually Ian killing someone. Okay, I'm counting the guard, too, because Ian knocked him unconscious and then they murder him while he's unconscious. It's more of an Ian manslaughter count on that one. Still, still, <laughs> just in terms of deaths, I hold Ian responsible for that. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to include that for when we come up to our overall tally. Right before they get on the TARDIS, the doctor was not sure if he wanted to keep the, I'm pretty sure it was uh, the thing that Kamika gave him. And so he had that little tiny scene of like, should I keep it? Should I not? And up keeping it. That's a good touch. I liked it. I, I wanted to point out, like, right after they leave that kind of rushed sacrifice right before the um, the eclipse, you know, I, I had criticized the actor that played Tol Toxel before, but, man, he really has a murderous gleam in his eye, like, just absolute just pleasure in his face. I mean, I think the performance that John Ringham puts in is over the top, but I think it's almost perfect for the role. I mean, you're not ever meant to think that Excedrin Extra is anything other than a barbarian and uh, and the local butcher, as the Doctor calls him, and it's it's played perfectly, in my opinion, even if it is over the top. I'm glad you brought that up. I really enjoyed that line. That was that was pretty pretty good, sharp line there. From the, the Doctor? Butcher line? Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. And so the sacrifice is still made. The TARDIS crew escapes and we get a we get the dialogue that we've already talked through with, you know, Barbara realizing everything that she's done. And, she, you know, while she wasn't able to change the customs, she just kind of caused Ortlock to lose faith. But the doctor reassures her. And then we get a very, very soft cliffhanger for the next story. So let's do our metrics and vote on the on the story. Are we uh, are we counting anything additional on the Susan Freakout counter this week, Julie? So I actually have all the numbers. From all the serials. And just to give a little background, one, I did actually rewatch some of An Earthly Child and Daleks because I just needed to to find some of these. It's a little bit arbitrary how I'm, you know, deciding the uh, Susan dramatic moments. Most of the time it is, you know, some of that more high-pitched screaming. Um, 
Oftentimes when she yells grandfather, that can be fairly tra- uh, dramatic. So there could probably be a little bit of differing opinions on these. So in An Unearthly Child, there was nine. <laughs> wow. Daleks is also nine. I'd like to point out there are more episodes there. Um, the Edge of Destruction, there were four. Oof. Marco Polo is also nine. The Keys of Marinus was six. And the Aztecs was only one. Whoa. We're at a total of 38 then. All right. And how many episodes total have we had so far? So we've had an Unearthly Child, which is four. Uh, 30 Dal- episodes. 30? So right. thir- 38 in, in 30. So we're averaging 1.26 recurring freakouts <laughs> per episode. <laughs> For more exciting math, stay tuned to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we've already referenced the Ian murder count, but including scenes where it looks like he's murdered someone, we're now at the end of this. It's a total count of five. I think it's worth mentioning here that we actually do get Ian's first genuine murder <laughs> when he throws Exeter to his death. The rest of all just kind of been the way it's been filmed or him appearing at the scene of a murder and being presumed guilty <laughs> so here we have the aforementioned indirect murder when Ixter kills the guard that ian knocked out and and then we have ian killing Ixter. and then finally the camp count um i'm i'm going to i'm going to use latoxel so i would say that is the probably the third camp character that we've had so far so camp count goes up to three so finally before we move on to our topic of the week let's rate the story um last time around we decided that rather than having a recommended measurement everyone can choose their own ideally out of 10 but it could be out of a different number in the past don has used out of 500 eyes i've used out of the five keys of marinus and then we kind of extrapolate what that equates to out of 10 so that you don't have to do the math so this week the aztecs let's start with julie so i'm going to be voting by Elaborate headdresses. Okay. I was a pretty big fan of those. Those were fantastic. I'm actually going to go with an eight headdresses. Some of the reasons are this was a very heavy Barbara cereal, which I always enjoy. Lutoxel was a little bit over the top, but again, that was what they were going for. Um, So he did very well. It was only four episodes, so it didn't seem drawn out. Um, The action kept pace, um, and there were some really good character moments, um, oftentimes between Barbara and the Doctor, but again, I mentioned before that Ian the Doctor also had some good moments. And yes, the, you know, limited Susan dramatic moments also helped. Awesome. Don. I have to say I enjoyed this story quite a bit. Something Julie mentioned that I think is very true was I think the pacing was really good on this. You didn't have filler episodes. You got in, you got out, you had a lot of really good moments. There was some action. There was some depth to the story. You had some touching moments with the doctor. I'm giving this story eight brides of sacrifice out of ten. Excellent. Riley? It's funny, everyone's making very good points that, like, looking back in retrospect, uh, I can agree with, but uh, I don't know. I just, there's something about this serial that I just 
don't like and maybe like i said it's straight off the bat where i feel like it's a little too like heavy-handed as we said necessarily so to explain to people the context of who are the aztecs what's going on but i don't know i just had a hard time with this one and maybe it's i'm not coming down from the previous serial um but i i just i just feel like there's there's not enough excitement going on plot wise uh I I really just had a really hard time. I'm just not a fan of Toltoxel. I, I it took me out of it. His his performance, especially when it's like we're looking at them from a true cultural historical point of view, and it's this guy who really just looks incredibly English, <laughs> and it's and and even his voice as well, and it just really threw me off, and it it got so bad that uh, I just I just said to myself i can't ask tech it anymore thank you thank you good night good night um anyway uh out of warriors of death uh i'll give it i wasn't gonna say three but you guys made some good points so i'm gonna have to bump it up to me four out of ten warriors of death wow well if it doesn't do it for you it doesn't do it for you yeah yeah so for me of years of being a doctor who fan i always used to struggle with the the early historicals and rewatching this this time round has really made me reevaluate it and i found myself enjoying this a lot more than i previously did i think the way it's plotted is phenomenal the pacing is great and i kind of liked the over the top theatricals of the toxel i kind of liked the richard the 3rd stylings that john ringham gave him i this one's really gone up in my estimation and if you'd asked me when i last did a watch through of doctor who in 2011 through 2013 i probably would have been more on the riley end of the spectrum and given this less than 5 but I think in rewatching it, I I was shocked at how much I enjoyed this, and I think for me this one gets seven and a half polystyrene slabs out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the most lopsided vote that we've had. It's very divisive. Clearly, Riley must be sacrificed. Oh no, no! I promise you, I am not the perfect victim. <laughs> You'll have to be the, you'll have to do victim. <laughs> have to the do convenient victim. victim. <laughs> the what we have to work with victim. <laughs> yes. He'll do in a pinch victim. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so before we wrap up, wanted to circle around and talk about the, you can't write, rewrite history, not one line piece. Or can you? Well, even in the, the Doctor Who universe, you know, this isn't something that holds. You know, eventually when we come to the revival of the series post-2005, they get they get around this by saying history's in flux and certain points are fixed and others are not. So you can change certain things. And after this, you know, we, we have this very weird relationship with the concept where Sometimes they acknowledge it, sometimes they don't. It's it's mostly ignored. But after they made such a big thing about it in this story, it's, it's one thing I wanted to come back to. 
it really depends on whose rules of time travel you're following. Yeah, because I was going to get down this long, complicated route of going back and then the alternate universe type theories and things of that nature, which gets much more complicated um, than just simply saying, oh, well, you're just changing something. And so it's changing that one timeline. Well, if I change something, doesn't it not split off into something else and kind of, you know, going down that route? Yeah, I thought about, I mean, it being explained a way of being able to change it because all you've done, I mean, if you want to do like the million different alternate universes um, theory, you can say, well, we changed this one thing and it didn't change this timeline that just shifted us over into the one where this happened. Yeah, but then the question comes down the line of if I had gone back from one time to this other time in split time when I go back to the back forward do I go back to my original one or do I go back to that one that had been changed and then you start getting a little bit more complicated yeah <laughs> well I think also where where we start coming into difficulties in this is we know the doc at this even at this point we know the doctor is from the future so to what at what point is it okay to start meddling in things so what might be the present or the future to us might be the past for the doctor so you start getting into this kind of weird thing of well why is it okay to intervene on Scaro and help the thals defeat the daleks but it's not okay to try and you know prevent human sacrifice in aztec earth it's, it's like the it's the issue is like the rel- relative nature of time in which like you know the doctor is traveling from Galathrae at the beginning for the stolen TARDIS. It's like, well, that's so far away from what's from Earth. You know, what when he did that, what was the time on Earth? And then the second question is like, there is some manner of time for the TARDIS to get from one time and location to another, but how much has changed? How long does that take? And I mean it gets very complicated. It's best just to allow the writers to do what they will with it, as long as it allows us to suspend our disbelief. I think, you know, to look at it from a production perspective, it's what the, I guess the modern term we'd use now is showrunner, but at the time they would, they called them story editors. So what the story editor's view really was. So at this point, you know, David Whittaker had a certain opinion, and I'm sure once we start moving on to Dennis Spooner, Donald Tosh, etc. We'll see changes in that. But Whitaker was quoted as writing in response to a fan who asked about changing history. And he, he actually wrote, uh, and I'm quoting here, the basis of time traveling is that all things that happen are fixed and unalterable. Otherwise, of course, the whole structure of existence would be thrown into unutterable confusion and the purpose of life itself would be destroyed. Doctor Who is an observer. What we are concerned with is that history, like justice, is not only done, but can also be seen to be done. That was David Whitaker's perspective. And I kind of think that's simplistic, particularly given that we know how the show develops and starts thinking about that kind of concept of history and how it can and can't be changed in, in greater detail as time goes by. It's certainly something that this story made me think about a lot probably more than it made me think about the Aztecs themselves. Barbara's intention is to make sure the Aztecs aren't eliminated by the Spanish, which that's a huge change. Yeah, 
And one thing I was left wondering on this was, you know, even if... What if Barbara's intervention weakened the culture to the point where rather than, you know, everyone being dead certain in their beliefs, we've seen doubt in the minds of people like Ortlock. What if her intervention weakened the culture to the point where that made it easier for the Spanish to take control once they got to Mexico or what we think of as Mexico? What what if Barbara's good intentions had the opposite effect and this was all kind of part of the history that we know? I think if Barbara really wanted to save the Aztecs from the Spanish, she would have given them antibiotics and not just tried to stop them from committing human sacrifice. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they definitely weren't ready for them to to show up with guns, germs, and steel. Book drop. Oh, yeah. I know my Jared Diamond. So, I think we all agree that this is a complicated matter that we're not going to be able to settle in the space of one podcast if we can ever settle it. Thank you for listening to us once again. We are the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension, and uh, we'll catch you next time when we will be covering the Sensorites. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Filipek, Riley Shrek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, sweet as tech chocolate, was recorded on Friday, January the 18th, 2019. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on either iTunes or Stitcher. And always remember, BBC drama isn't any fun unless the villain is a carbon copy of Shakespeare's Richard III.